Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Today we're going to be looking at how Jesus raised the standard. So, first of all, who here has seen the classic film Pitch Perfect? Yeah. <laughs> and so, stay with me, I swear it is relevant. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's a filmic masterpiece about an a cappella singing rival groups in a college. Yeah, it's, it is what it says on the tin. Um, but for the, the film was so big for a minute that actually I think a cappella groups actually became a little bit popular, which was like mind blowing. But there is a scene in this first film where a bunch of girls are auditioning to be part of this a cappella group. And they're doing some like classic kind of Kelly Clarkson song. And I think there's like acoustic, like, uh, not acoustic, like harmonies and then like noises they make with their mouths. I'm not really sure. But actually a lot of them are pretty good singers. And then at the end of the scene, Anna Kendrick, I can't remember her character's name, she walks in and she does that classic like (laughs) song uh, that I know you have all done at some point in your lives with the cup. And uh, she just basically blows them out of the park. She is like next level, much higher standard than the rest of them. And she sets the bar higher, basically. And then as the film continues on, They all group together, led by Anna Kendrick, and uh, the whole group improves, and she trains them up, and they went on to win regionals or nationals or something like that. But this one person raised the standard, which then went on to impact others, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. So we're going to be reading from Matthew 5, verses 17 to 26. So if you'd like to turn to that now, if you've got your Bibles on you, it's also going to appear on the screen behind me. So do not think that I have, this is Jesus speaking now, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I'm just going to pray before we get going. Yeah, Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for this sermon where Jesus spoke such wisdom and truth. And I just pray, God, today that these words that were said thousands of years ago, Lord, will just, um, yeah, refresh and come and stir up our hearts this morning. Amen. So yeah, as I said, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount and looking at the theme of how we live for God. 
Now, you'll notice in your Bibles um, that the topics within this passage are all titled and almost split up into sections. But as Tim did last week, he drew the Beatitudes at the beginning and salt and light together. And I think it's important as we go through these passages to remember that this was actually all one big sermon that flowed together. Jesus didn't finish a point and then go, right, now let's talk about murder. It was everything flowing one thing to the next, and they're all connected. The attitudes of a believer seen in verses 3 to 11 then flow into how we hold ourselves within the world, how we differ to those around us, how we are called to be soul and light. Verse 14, as Tim said last week, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This light, this salt that we've been given is to ultimately bring glory to our Father in heaven. We differ from those around us because the law of our lives, our way of being, doesn't originate with our parents or our society or our upbringing or environment, but with biblical truth. Which is what we're going to see on through this passage this morning. It informs our heart's obedience and how we let biblical truth inform our actions and behaviour today. So first within this passage, we see Jesus begin by outlining how he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and how now that he has come, he's not discarding this law, but actually now raising the bar and stating how the life of a follower of God is not just about outward obedience, but it's about heart obedience. So my first point today is that Jesus, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus, um, who's Jesus, um, came to fulfill the law, not forget it. So I'm sure we all heard here of the phrase reinventing the wheel. A wheel, one of the first inventions of mankind, is an invention that we still use today. And obviously we're not using a kind of Flintstone-esque rock with a hole in it or a sawn-off tree trunk, but it's progressed. And now they look a lot more shinier and they're mechanical, electric, or even some still kinetic. But you can imagine when they came to optimise and modernise the wheel. They didn't scrap the original blueprint. They were like, right, let's go for a triangle instead. But work from that to give us what we use today. Jesus here in this passage was reinforcing how he hadn't come to reinvent the wheel. He hadn't come to replace the old laws. He hadn't come to discard them or start afresh, but to bring them to completion. And I think there's a potential maybe when we're introducing someone someone new to the Bible to kind of avoid the Old Testament initially and be like, this half of the Bible's a bit dark and problematic. There's some weird stories in there. But don't worry, it's now irrelevant because Jesus is here. So let's just turn to 1 John. Um, But we see here Jesus jumps straight in. In verse 17, he says, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill the law. The old laws aren't now irrelevant because Jesus has arrived but their relevance has now peaked because Jesus has arrived. It's like that scene in like a cryptic film or novel where things maybe don't feel like they're made, they've made a lot of sense yet and it's all kind of a bit blurry. And then the plot twist comes and you're like, oh, it all fits together. Like Jesus, in this sense, he is the plot twist, except we have several books and prophets who all saw it coming. And thousands of years worth of scripture have been leading up to this moment where the Messiah arrives and actually the Sermon on the Mount finishes later on in chapter 7 verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus spoke with the authority given to him by the Father in the knowledge that he was the completion of the law. 
And Jesus is not, nothing if not a man of detail. It says in verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by, be, by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Or in other words, in our English terms, you could say like every dot of the I in scripture or every cross of the T, every element is still relevant until everything is accomplished, until Jesus had died, been resurrected, returned to heaven, and then as we wait for him to come again. The purpose of the law is and always has been to reveal God's heart for how we should live. And the Ten Commandments didn't become irrelevant when Jesus came on the scene. Jesus is a kind and gracious king who sacrificed himself for us and saved us from the debt of our sins. But in doing this, he didn't lower the standards for how we should live. He didn't give us his all so that we in return just can go on as we were. Jesus asks for a higher standard beyond the law. In verse 20, it says, For I tell you that unless righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees at the time had a real issue with image versus substance, which I think, interestingly enough, is something we see a lot of in our world today. They would talk the talk, but not walk the walk. They'd publicly practice their faith with the main aim to be seen by others. If you were to think of almost like a modern day example of a Pharisee, you could almost maybe compare it to that of an influencer who puts together an image of a charitable and loving personality online but behind closed doors, it's a different story. Or on the other hand, maybe a preacher who comes to the front and preaches and challenges you to turn away from their sin, your sin, but returns home to their own secret sin, unrepentant. unrepentant. Or even an individual who is far more invested in their outward image and how they're perceived in the world than the purity of their heart. Later on in Matthew 23, Verse 25, we see Jesus challenged the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. The Pharisees and scribes at the time, they may have seemed like role models to follow and aspire to. They looked like they had it all together. They were very intelligent. They knew their Bibles inside out, and they sat high in society, but ultimately they had impure hearts. And Jesus uses this example of a cup or a dish that looks shiny and clean on the outside, but it's dirty and unclean in the inside. It's what's going on in the inside that counts. First clean the cup, clean inside the cup and dish, then the outside will be clean also. Kingdom righteousness works from the inside out. When we come before God and we acknowledge our sin, the wrongful things we've done in our lives, and receive forgiveness and grace from him, we're not met right there with a pamphlet with all of the details and attributes, appearance and behaviours of a Christian that you must now ascribe to. I kind of was putting together a silly one. was like, start liking cheese and wine nights. Um, if you've got a northern accent, it needs to change to a southern one. And also stop wearing that and stop hanging out with them. <laughs> That's a little bit. Um, but God doesn't care about those things. God cares about your heart. And as we draw near to him, as we ask the spirit to fill us, our hearts are changed. And those beatitudes that we read at the beginning of chapter five, they become us. It really doesn't matter if you like cheese or wine or not, or if you're blessed with a northern accent. Um, for the Pharisees, their obsession with image, religious rituals and rules was preventing them from entering the kingdom of heaven. 
And Jesus asks for more. He notes that the Pharisees' desire to seek righteousness started with actions and stopped at the heart. But what Jesus asks of us is to start with the heart and from there our actions and righteousness will follow. And I'd love to challenge us this morning in those areas of our lives where we may be fixated on the actions we do or the image that we bear more than our heart's posture. Are there things that we do within our lives or within the life of the church where our main aim is to be seen and recognised by others? Or are we chasing after a pure heart, asking the Holy Spirit to come and transform us from within? It's your heart's posture and obedience that God cares most about. Which is my second point. Where does our obedience flow from? Verse 22, we see Jesus go on and say, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which means worthless person, moron, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, I'm not going to do a show of hands, but I kind of presume that no one here in their short lives has committed murder. Um, But I can guarantee that we've all been angry, let's be honest, especially at family members. Uh, My mum listens to this podcast, so... um. (laughs) But I remember one Christmas a while back where all my family, me and my immediate family, got together. And um, for the life of me, I can't remember what I was angry about, but whatever it was, whatever the argument was, it caused me to get up from the sofa and, like, storm out of the sitting room, basically. And unfortunately for me, in the speed of me walking out, my dressing gown decided to, like, dramatically flail behind me, which kind of added to the drama of me leaving, but also managed to knock over a nearby full glass of not white but red wine onto my parents' very pale carpet. So I storm out, kind of slightly noticing this glass of red wine falling over, but I shut the door behind me, like this, and then I storm back in two minutes later with kitchen roll and carpet cleaner remover. <laughs> like, start scrubbing aggressively the carpet and then storm back out again as well. And I, it's one of those things where I just, I actually would love to see a recording of that because I must have looked like an idiot. Like, I must have looked like such a numpty in my anger, kind of scrubbing the carpet clean. But my point is that we all get angry. And anger in itself, it's an emotion, not an action. And I think we can sometimes get the two confused. Anger itself is not a sin. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin. Ephesians 4 verse 26, implying that it's possible to be angry and not sin. And it's important that when we experience anger, that we sit and figure out what's its source. Where do I feel out of control? What is so important about this thing or situation that I am so defensive of it? And if we don't figure out the answers to these questions, more often than not, we'll either act impulsively and lash out at those in the vicinity and do something we regret, or we'll cool off initially, but push the anger down until it grows to bitterness and then it leaks out into other areas. Or it'll bubble up within us until it erupts in the wrong place at the wrong time and most likely at the wrong people. And without a doubt, we have all been in either or both of those scenarios in our lives. But Jesus draws a pretty crazy comparison here between murder and anger in the same sentence as an equal offence, which was just as shocking 2,000 years ago as it is today. 
if you think about sitting in court and there were two cases and there was one where someone was on a murder trial and the other individual had just anger management issues and they received equal sentences, it would, it would feel unjust, it would feel crazy. You'd be shocked. Surely the one who went through the crime is more guilty. But the law said to not physically commit murder, so by refraining from that action, you could consider yourself obeying the law. I've not killed anyone, yay for me, I'm a good little Christian. But actually, Jesus saw things at a deeper level, bringing up the case of, in anger, insulting your brother or your sister. Jesus is saying here that the feelings that lead you to insult your brother or sister, your mother, friend, even a stranger, are equal to the feelings that would lead you to murder. He's saying that whatever is churning away within you when you speak harshly or bitterly towards someone is the same substance that churns away in the context of murder. We may think of ourselves quite highly in a sense of, well, actually, I know I've done some bad or wrong things in my life, but I'm not that bad. But Jesus is saying that that place that's born before murder, we've actually, we've all been there if we've been angry. And if we go down this route, the outcome is costly. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat his words. He says that the outcome will lead us to hell. And this goes back to our first point and how Jesus was raising the standard of expectation. He wasn't, isn't wanting a people that just simply follow the law, but he's wanting us to be transformed by it from the inside out. The Pharisees, they followed the law, but they didn't actually allow it to transform their heart's posture. And God wants our all, which when you think about it in its simplest form, is a really beautiful thing. Whether you're feeling kind of disheartened or unloved or neglected this morning, there is one that whose desire is so deeply for you that he cares about the well-being of your heart. He's not a father or friend who briefly asks how you're doing, shows initial interest, and then gets distracted. He's invested in you. He cares about your emotions, your actions. He's a loving father that is up there willing you to grow mature, knowing what ultimately is best for you. Which leads me to my last point. How do we deal with anger? I don't think cleaning the carpet is necessarily the best way to do it. Although you get a clean carpet at the end of it. So. But now, the image I get when I think of anger is a wailing toddler on the aisle, like aisle five of Asda, screaming, it's not fair, at the top of their lungs in a supermarket because their parents won't buy them some kind of tacky, cheap, plastic toy. Or if they're anything like my six-year-old nephew, a handheld drill, which he was not going to ever get. But this toddler is consumed by emotion and wailing and screaming and he's stuck, or she, is stuck in this loop and outwardly projecting it to everyone in the vicinity. And you may look at this child as you're picking up your organic potatoes and go, oh, thank goodness my response to anger management is no longer like that. But I hate to break it to you guys, but it most likely is. We're just most likely hiding it a lot better. So... Actually, what the child is doing and projecting outwards is what's going on internally for us. Rather than screaming to the world, it's not fair, the voice in your head is bellowing it. You're going around circles in your mind, unable to draw yourself out, driving over the same thought patterns, unable to get up and move. And you realise that internally you are also stuck on the floor of aisle five of an Asda superstore. And there's a feeling of lack of control. And when we feel out of control, we get defensive and offensive. And we're quick to blame others and shame others around us. And at the core of our anger is most, most likely feelings of fear, sadness, helplessness, and humiliation. And actually, to admit those feelings is incredibly vulnerable. So then to take it to the one who's hurt us to reconcile feels like one step further in that vulnerability. 
Because often it's also admitting our own shortcomings and also admitting and putting aside our own pride. But Jesus encourages us to deal with these scenarios quickly and to not let them fester. He also implies that holding on to grudges or refusing to reconcile can affect our offering. We see in verse 23, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Again, we see Jesus' priority here is first settle your heart and then give your offering in that order. Heart and then action. Also, it's not just Jesus saying, if you have something against your brother or sister, but if your brother or sister has something against you also. We read a couple of weeks ago how blessed are the peacemakers for the big called children of God back in verse 9. And we're called to be makers of peace, whether we are in the wrong or whether we have been wronged ourselves. It's very easy when we feel wronged to have the mindset, well, I was right, so I'm going to sit here in my anger and frustration until they realise what they've done and they come and apologise. Only then will we reconcile. But as James says in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is not this, that your passions, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That phrasing there, at war within you, just takes me right back to that screaming toddler on the floor. James seems to be far more concerned about what's going on within us, in our hearts, than what the quarrels or fights are about, than who is right or who is wrong, or what is fundamentally right or wrong. But actually, our emphasis should be on our hearts and how they're approaching the situation. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Jesus' motive here, again, is for us to guard our hearts. Holding on to grudges and anger can be destructive. It can imprison us. But Jesus instructs us to move quickly. He says in verse 25, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. If we don't put aside our pride, forgive and reconcile, it will take everything from us. It will be imprisoned and it will take our last penny. This standard that Jesus sets, it's high and it's challenging to go further than what the law outlines to seek internal, authentic transformation that starts with our heart, to seek peace when someone has wronged or hurt you, when the world or your friends might say, cut them off, they're toxic. Jesus says, forgive and reconcile. We can't do this in our own strength. It's just not possible. But Jesus has sent one that can help us. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, after he was resurrected, he said, it's good that I go. And I think when I was thinking about this this week, I'm pretty sure the disciples would have been like, eh? Like, I think it'd be better if you stayed. Like, it's a very weird thing to say. But Jesus says, no, no, I'm promising something. It says in John 16, verse 7, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The advocate, the Holy Spirit. And actually the Greek word used here in this verse in reference to the Holy Spirit is parakletos, which means one who is called to one side, especially to help. Today, as we navigate pursuing heart transformation, obedience and reconciliation in the midst of pain, we know that there is one who is called to our side, working within us to help us. And described throughout the Bible as our comforter, our counsellor, helper, intercessor, 
strengthener and standby. We don't do this by our own strength, but empowered by the one who lives within us.